Hey, good people, this is your N.I. Dom, back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I'm starting with leadership maturity. Leadership maturity. I wanted to start off by saying leadership, which is probably a a more honest way to start this reflection, but because I've already done a reflection on leadership, I'm like, Ugh. I'm going to have to find a way to differentiate it just for the sake of the title. But So leadership is really on my brain, but I think maturity is um, at the heart of it in terms of me really leaning into um, identifying as a leader. And this is a reflection that's been a, a long time coming, and I'm glad to be here, but I do feel like I'm in uncharted territory, like, mm, I don't really know. <laughs> so I will tell you that I do have a list. Um, I did. I needed to write down some things just because I've been mulling this over for the past few days, um, and uh and honestly, the list existed before the entrance. So before I came up with leadership as my entrance point in this reflection or leadership maturity, I made a list of five things. And five, number five on the list was leadership, what's next? Um, and then after I thought about leadership, what's next, I realized that's kind of where all of those ideas, all of these items on the list that's what they're driving. Um, it's all about, it's really about leadership maturity. I, I believe it is. Now, when I get into the reflection, it's possible that I'm going to stumble across something else or greater clarity. So we will give, will give me permission to do that. But my starting point is leadership maturity. And let me just tell you the things, the other four things that are on the list. Number one, adult human the adult human. I have a lot of thoughts about that. Number two, I'm circling back to some of my pillars when I hit a stress point. So I've hit a stress point. I should have started off with that. But the, um, the reason why I probably didn't tell you I'm starting off with a stress point or I'm in a stress point because I'm already problem solving it. All right. But this, um, this bubble that I've been in the past few days, really, it's been a been a couple of weeks, really, but it's come to a head, if you will, in the last few days. Um, and when I get to stress points, um, I go back to personality theory. So number two is eight, the social, um, excuse me, the Enneagram eight. Um, this thing between self-preservation and social. Um, number three, the INTJ and relating to effectiveness. Number four being inside of an F-E-T-I organization. My goodness, I'm inside of an F-E-T-I organization. And then again, number five, what's next? Leadership, what's next? So that's where I'm at. Um, I think this is going to be good for anybody who's doing leadership or who's rubbing up against leadership, okay? So stick around and, and <laughs> watch me struggle. All right, if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two that I use the most are the 
Myers-Briggs, and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into tenets of critical race feminism, which basically means I have an intellectual sensitivity to social constructs around power, such as race, class, gender, sexuality, to name a few. This project is unedited and it is unscripted. To know more about it or me, feel free to visit my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. Okay? So I want to start off by... um, I don't want to start off with the list. I want to start off by doing a little bit of storytelling. And I don't know if you guys know this. I've said it before in the beginning of this journey of this project, but I don't like storytelling. Although I'm coming to terms with culturally, it's the way that um, culturally I'm primed to do storytelling. And um, I find that I don't, okay. Let me say this differently, and I don't want to fall into a rabbit hole, (laughs) but I don't like doing storytelling in this project because it's personal. It gets personal, and I just don't like it. But when I'm teaching, I do storytelling because culturally um, I'm primed to do that. It's where it makes the most sense to share and teach concepts within context, within stories. All right, so there you go. So I'm going to start off with some storytelling, even though I don't like it, but I think it's the best way to um, kind of unlayer what's going on for me in terms of this stress, this point of stress that I'm in. I also need to be really honest about, I'm going to tell you something that is very hard for me, almost shameful, very, very shameful. And I got to deal with that too, because I'm dealing with a lot of shame around it. Um... And I think the shame that I'm feeling with it is complicating it. It's making it worse, <laughs> right? Because I feel shame and now I'm trying to like erase it or compensate for it or manipulate it. And it's actually making it worse. I just want to sit in it. This thing that I'm going to tell you, it's very difficult. That's why I'm, that's why I'm belaboring it right now. <sighs> okay, let me tell you what I did that's very shameful. I've cried in front of my staff, not the whole staff, but a subset of that staff. And I've done it three times. And that's not cool for me. So it's not cool. It's a, it's, I say it's shameful. I'm going to have to research the difference between being embarrassed and shameful. Because I don't feel as embarrassed by it then I do feeling ashamed of it. And that's interesting. I'm, I don't know why. Um, I'm going to have to process that. And if you get to it faster, you want to send me some feedback, you're nidom.wordpress.com. Thank you very much. <laughs> so anyway, so I've cried three times in front of a subset of my staff. I supervise about about 30 people. And... Um, the subset that I'm referring to is 20% of that, the whole. So it's about five people 
that have seen me cry. And they've, and I've said three times, so all five of them did not see me cry five times. They've only seen me as a group cry one time. And it wasn't like, it wasn't a boo-hoo, but it was, I was clearly choked up. I was clearly emotional. Um, and that's really complicated for me. So that's one thing. Um, and I feel like if I really explain the complications of that, it's going to send me into a different reflection. Um, so I'm going to try to push through past that, but if it's, it might be, I might circle back to it. But anyway, so three times. Um, so one person has seen me, two people have seen me do it twice. I'm sorry, three people have seen me do it twice, but not in the same time. And then, but it's been a total of three times with this particular subgroup. Um, so that's it. That's a big deal to me. You guys will know. Um, so let me give you the complication of the crying of why it's complicated. I think it's not, I'm not embarrassed to cry anymore. I don't think I've ever really been embarrassed to cry. It's just not something that I do publicly. I do it privately because I'm a big ball of mushy sap on the inside, right? INTJs we are and AIDS we are. We just don't lead with that. We don't walk about in the world with that mushy center being on display. So when that mushy center bubbles up and out and over, that means something. And when it does it on repeat, my God, it means something. So the third time that I did it, it was Monday of this past week. And that night I made a, I sent an email to my therapist. I was like, yo, <laughs> this is the third time this has happened. I need to figure out what's going on. I can't figure it out. Do you have some availability? You know what? That wasn't Monday. It was Tuesday. Yeah, it was Tuesday. The The emotional um, display was Monday, but it was Tuesday. I could not. I just was like, I got I to gotta figure this thing out. What the hell is that? So Tuesday, I sent an email. Um, this is happening. I don't know why it's happening. I need to get a, I got to get an understanding of this so I can get a handle on it. Um, cause this just can't keep happening. And, um, um, I'm sorry. Something is just popping into my head. My brain is making some connections right now. Let me, let me, let me shut that off and focus. And so to her credit, she was like, I, cause we, you know, she was like, I have, you know, I have some time. It's a shorter time than we normally engage, but I have some time. And I told her it was going to be over the phone because I couldn't come into her office. And so called her up. We had a really good session. And about maybe 70% into that session, it occurred to me that those those tears are about anger. 
And I remember when I got to that point in the session, I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, those tears are about anger. And she said that she, when she had, um, when we started off, um, she, 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 cause I asked her if she wanted me to tell her the story of what happened or if she wanted me to tell her how I've been trying to make meaning out of what happened. And she asked me to start off by saying, share, share with me the meaning making that you, that you've been doing. So somewhere in that part of the discussion of me sharing it with her, my meaning making, she had written down, um, unre- unexpressed anger. But she never said it to me until we got until I got to that place where I was like, "Oh my gosh, I have un I have un I said I have repressed anger or something like that." And so that really made sense to me. Um, um, and this is what's related to the subgroup that subgroup of the my entire staff. Those are my BIPOC staff. BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous People of Color, and um, you you can you can see where this is going with my connection to critical race feminism and as a social aid you know eight there are three subtypes if you guys aren't familiar with the enneagram each number according to dr beatrice chestnut and i really i really subscribe to her thinking here each personality type has a subtype there are three subtypes um, that really give scope to it and so i've pretty much have come to peace with being identifying with the social subtype, which is number two on my list, eight. Um, um, I have identified as a social self-preservation subtype. That third subtype is sexual. And what I will say about the Enneagram, at least this is for me, while we lean into those three, excuse me, we lean into one of those three, we actually engage in all of them. We just do one more. Um, and I think we fight against the third one. I can't remember. But anyway, so if you've been following this project, you know that I've also tested as a one and a five of twice each. And how I have, I've reconciled being an eight in a number of different ways. But one key way is, when I look at each of those subtypes, I see me in all three of them, even though that sexual eight is just, there's only one way I show up as a sexual eight, but there are many ways I show up as a self-preservation and a social eight. Anyway, but when I looked at the type one, I could not identify with all three of those subtypes. I could only identify with one of them. And the same thing for the type five. Out of the three subtypes, I could only identify with one. But with that eight, I can identify with all three of those subtypes, even though I lean into one more than the other. Now, since I'm on number, I'm actually in number two on my list right now. Um, so just so you guys know, um, my uh, heart coach uh, slash therapist, that's what I call her, my heart coach, she feels that I'm a self-preservation eight more than a social eight. And I was like, yeah, but so there's always been this gnawing inside of me that am I really social self-preservation or am I self-preservation social? And right around the beginning of 2021, at the end of 2020 
in 2021, I spent a lot of time in this project and in my personal life trying to differentiate between the two, the social, self-preservation, self-preservation, social. So this is where I'm at. This is where I've been. I've been social, self-preservation. But <laughs> I'm going to tell you, based on this stressor that I'm experiencing, that the, I don't know. I don't know. I was going to say, based on the stressor and those tears, it could be indicative that I'm self-preservation. And then what I know about the social, I can like, maybe it's social. I'm going to have to give Dr. I'm going to have to find Dr. Beaches and find a way for her to give me some time because I'm, I do feel pretty split, um, between the two. I, I, I feel more social though. Okay. We're going to, we're going to leave it there. So anyway, so as a social aide, I have a, um, a heightened sense of the social world. And how the social world functions. It doesn't mean that I'm social. Although. It doesn't mean for me I'm social. Although when you look at some of the literature. Some of the literature denotes some type of social aspect. Um, I sometimes wonder. Because I'm an introvert. And as an INTJ. I just am not social like that. However. I wonder culturally if some of this social is part of my, it's where the social is manifesting. So as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background, and maybe the trauma is having a part in it, I'm not sure. But survival is located in the social, how we survive. And that's what all three of those uh, subtypes are about. They're all about instincts for survival. And so I come from a culture that has survived generationally um, by being certainly banding together due to an outside um, threat. So that cultural part of me is where I think a lot of that. Um, social comes from more so than my personality type, my, excuse me, more so than my cognitive wiring, um, through the Myers Briggs. So anyway, so now I have this subgroup. So I have a staff of 30, five of them are of color. Um, and the social part of me, and as an eight, I'm very protective. So I'm, I feel very protective about a subgroup of people that really aren't being protective of me. They're really not. What they're doing though, they are, there's a semi-protectiveness about it. They're protective of me when it's about being in front of white people. So in the face of whites, they will protect me. But amongst themselves, they're not protecting me. They're not, no, they're not. They're not. So I'm, I'm experiencing that. So I'm experiencing that duality with them and not really having the words for it at the time, you know, intuitively as an NI Dom, by the way, if you don't know these type, these, <laughs> if you don't know these systems, I don't even know. How, <laughs> I really need to put that back in my disclaimers because you do need to know these systems because I'm just using the, this jargon and I'm not teaching it. I'm not explaining it. But anyway, um, 
as an NI DOM for through the through the Myers Briggs as an INTJ, I'm an NI DOM. I'm going to intuit a thing before I can put words to it. And and this is this is where I think I don't know that middle those two middle functions T E N I like the T E it's the T E is going to let me take action on it. Um, that T E is going to let me it's going to help to organize it. And I just listened read read an article that talked about NI doesn't organize. Some people say NI organizes organizes, um, um, but uh, I've heard a lot of people say that the introvert intuition takes in information and then it organizes it into patterns. <sighs> this is complicated. But I read another article that says NI doesn't do the organizing. That's the judging function that organizes it. I don't I don't have time to like I want to be on both sides of that. I want to say I agree and then I want to say I disagree, but we don't have time to process that. I just wanted to share that. But anyway, so this TE part of me is really important because I take action. So I'm intuiting a thing. Because that FI is even though it's tertiary. Because it's in the same direction of my dominant function, those are they're in they're inter, they're entangled a little bit. So I was having a a a, a reaction to what I was intuiting. But here's the anger. I couldn't take the action that I would have taken if that those women would have been white or men. I would have just without a heartbeat. I would have without a heartbeat taken action, but because they were women, I'm very as a as a my um, women as a group that has this doesn't have a, as much power as men, and then of course as a minority group, racial minority group that not does not have as much power as the racial elite as whites. Um, there's a protectiveness about that I have. And that protectiveness was not allowing me to take the action that I would have done instinctively as an INTJ8. And so that action was repressed, needing there needed to be an outlet for that. And that's where the tears came from. I really do believe that. It took me a minute to get there. So that's how that made sense to me. So since I had that breakthrough on Wednesday, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what you're going to have. Because it's not like I had that breakthrough and I was like, oh, emotionally, I don't have those emotions. I don't have those emotions anymore. They're still there. I still have that protectiveness for them. And I still have a, um, a conviction that doesn't allow me to take action um, against them when I'm primed. And wired to take action for them. Right? But the... (laughs) I can't take action against them. Because I am wired to take action for them. Yet, there is something that is coming against me all the same. And then, what it's doing is putting me in an extra vulnerable place. Because I won't push back. Because of that protective nature. So one thing my heart coach did, she did one thing that was, she just was really, she was on fire that on Wednesday. I get frustrated with her sometimes. 
a lot. <laughs> but she really, really, that was just, what she did on Wednesday really was um, just a showcasing of why I hang it. I've been with her for about six years. I have to take breaks. <laughs> Sometimes I just have to take long breaks. But <laughs> I come back to her and that's why. But anyway, so she said to me, think about some how you've had to reconcile that protective nature with your family and protect yourself because of the intergenerational trauma. And her, she said, you've done it. And then I thought about my ex because there is, it, it is something I have to balance when I'm feeling protected. I am wired to protect as an eight. I don't think um, all INTJs are that way. So if you're an INTJ five, you can just like bounce, right? I don't have time for this. And I will do that in any other part of my life. My family was really a big breakthrough because I couldn't just bounce from them. Well, I pretty much, like, I don't sit around in, in a lot of the nonsense. It took me so long to get to being at a place where I could really distance myself from my family because of some of the the harm, right? So I got that. And my heart coach was able to put that in front of me, like, you've done this already. You you know how to do it. You you. You can do it. <laughs> like you have the skills to do it. That notion of protectiveness will not govern you. It doesn't have to govern you because you've you've liberated yourself basically from that that part of my wiring. That it's okay to be protector, but it's not okay to be harmed as a protector. And that is abuse, right? And that is familial for me. That I was, I was socialized to protect the very person that was harming me. Okay? All right, I want to go to something I'll say. I can feel the tears right now. So this is really a pocket of growth for me. Like, this is really, really, this is really a place of growth. That's something I need to grow in. And some people are like, why do you hit the record button and put your business out there like that? Because this is um, extroverting, it very much helps me. And um, I believe, and, and as the change agent uh, that I, I am, um, if me sharing this helps you or helps someone that you know, then this is worth it for me. It's worth the suffering. Um, I rather suffer in purpose, rather suffer in silence. So, yes, it's difficult to put this out there. But in putting in this out there, I know if it helps someone, that sounds like type one, doesn't it? And I'm going to say something about that in a minute. Um, if I know that it helps someone, then I will, it's worth it. It's, it's suffering with purpose, okay? All right, let me say this um, about type one. So based on the Enneagram, in the eights, eights, eight, um, um, and I just... I was reading something about adult psychology. Interesting, you guys. Adult psychology is a discipline that really takes a look at adulthood as the the sum total of what we experience as children. It's the manifestation of that. All right. The Enneagram is pretty much grounded in that. 
the Enneagram, these eight types, basically takes a look. If you were socialized, if you had this kind of childhood, this is what's happening in your home, more than likely this is where you are going to be as an adult, okay? Type eights were people who were in, there was some violence in the house. There was an authoritarian, abusive, like um, some type of authoritarian, some type of abuse of power, right? So if you grew up with that, people who grew up with that and felt like they had to be uh, a protector in that, um, typically those are your eights. This is why we don't deal with authority. This is why we don't do vulnerability. This is why we confront. Um, this is why we challenge. We disrupt. We're, we can be rebellious. Um, all of that <laughs> because of that childhood experience. Okay? That's clear. What is also clear for me with, um, is... Um, Well, that's not true. I was going to say something, but that's not true. Um, okay, so f- it's not true for the one. I was going to say something about the one that's not true. There, um, I'll have to come back to some thinking I had about the one that it doesn't really relate to this point that I'm making. So anyway, so I'm going to go back to the eight. So my my dad was that person. My father was physically abusive. It wasn't just something that I heard about. It was something I witnessed. He was never physically abusive to me, but he was physically abusive to my mother. Was you know, And then um, I later, when I became an adult, I began to experience him, him as verbally abusive, psychologically abusive, emotionally abusive, right? So I experienced him in that way. Okay. <sighs> Boy, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. I'm like... Rest in peace, rest in heaven, Dad. But that's true. <laughs> I feel him looking at me <laughs> right now through this picture. Um, but anyway, but there was another type of abuse happening, and it was by by way of my mom. Um, and so I uh, grew up experiencing a dual relationship with her, protecting her, feeling the need to protect her, and then also needing to be. Um, protected from her and not really not really having that Um, and so that creates that duality in me so that when I experience um, I move about in the world as a protector it, it and most of the time that's fine right I've chosen the right occupation for me to do the protecting. That's not a problem. But when I experience somebody that I'm protecting, nope, no, 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 no. There's a, okay, me moving about in the world as a, as a, in my profession, it works, right? Most of the time I'm protecting children. It's clear. It's clear. I've also been in a space where I have protected other adults, excuse me, um, around race. So when I'm protecting children, that's not about race. That's just about them having the least amount of power. That is first for me. 
hands down, any day, all day, okay? Then the second tier of my protective nature would be anybody that is in um, a compromising position due to power, whether that's race, sexuality, or a number of things, and I can move in to be a protector in that. The problem with me being a protector or being wired to be a protector is that I will sometimes take on this identity or this role of being a protector when it's not my job to do that. And not only is it not my job to do that, that person is showing signs of being harmful to me. But because I don't see myself in this vulnerable way to protect myself because, again, I wasn't raised to protect myself. That was not, I was not affirmed to protect myself. I was raised to protect my mother, (laughs) you know, um, and to protect my sister. That was my job as a kid so that when harm comes my way, it doesn't register to me as harm at all. Not initially. It takes a long time for me to get that. I can feel the emotion right now because this is, again, this is it. This is, this is it right here. This is where I'm, um, this is just it. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. This is the place of struggle. So it takes a long time for me to realize, yo, you need to protect your damn self. And my sister sent me a text a, a week ago and it really kind of pissed me off. And there's a place in the Bible, um, in the Christian sacred text that talks about, um, physician heal thyself for you can heal, heal other people. You have to heal yourself. And I do agree with that. But I think healing is a continuum, right? I'm not going to just sit on the sidelines and be like, okay, until I'm all, no, because that felt, that feels like, um, silencing. That feels like reducing. Um, so anyway, anyway, but to to the point that now that I know this is an issue, I don't have a problem with confronting this challenge that I'm having because I am wired for growth, right? And now that is part of my INTJ self. I am wired. For growth, when I see that there's a a, a, a a need for growing in myself, I'm all on it. I mean, I'm I'm going to get in it. I'm going to get in the pocket. The problem is sometimes I don't see it, particularly in this area of self care, self protection. This is why I don't feel I'm self preservation first. This is why I don't think that. So I don't know. But then my, my heart coach says that I don't sit, I don't sit in discomfort long, which is true. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have an opinion about that. Definitely, definitely let me know because I don't, I do feel pretty torn on that. Okay. But anyway, nonetheless, just getting back to this situation. So with this duality with these individuals, so I, they and, and here's the other complicated about that. My view of supervision is I don't need you to protect me. I don't need you. That's another thing that made that difficult for me to really come to terms with the fact that I was, that, that there was some harm there. 
there's some harm. Um, so last year, you guys know I went through, and so this is why I think leadership maturity is really the name of the game where my growth is needed and maturity in a couple of different ways. So last year, you guys, last semester, you were witness to that. If you've been following this project, I, I had some real struggles, uh, but not in leadership in the way that I saw leadership, but in um, dealing with my superior and very comp, very, comp, uh, very much like what I'm dealing with now with someone who quote unquote reported to me, but also I saw him as a peer. And so with that being said, that was complicated because if he was somebody that reported to me clearly, then I would be able to handle it. But the moment he also showed up for me as a peer, or I had some kind of affiliation with him, that was a struggle um, for me. It was just clear. It was, excuse me, confusing. Likewise with my supervisor. If it was just about him being my supervisor, power over me, and he did something I didn't like, I would not have had a problem with doing X, Y, and Z. Not at all. Well, because he was a black man and I'm a black woman and just all of my views and my values around racial justice, that made it very difficult for me to react to um, um, react or respond to that situation. Um, so with my my assistant principal, I was a principal. I had an assistant principal. He was also black. And I, I'm pausing there because he identified as black. He was raised by two um, uh, white parents. He dates exclusively, almost exclusively, or he married two white women. Um, not at the same time, of course. but And he embraced a lot of the, um, some, a lot of some, cultural norms associated to the white culture, white ways of being. So anyway, there was that. But I still had a protectiveness. There's still an affiliation. And in that affiliation, it is the activation of protectiveness for me. So this is good. I don't know if I've lost you, um, but this is kind of me working it out. So, And working it out for me is this leadership maturity because... I think the tears, and any time I get to a place of tears, it always is an indicator for me. Something is going on, and in a way that my TE cannot register. Okay, so so with this team, um, there's um, I'm now there are two levels of protectiveness. I'm the supervisor. I'm supposed to protect you. That's my view of supervision. Uh, I got to come back to that. And you are of color and in a, in a world that does not share power with you in the way that it shares with the racial elite. And there's a protectiveness there. 
This idea of supervision as protection is something I'm going to interrogate a little bit more because I also see supervision. So first of all, I don't really have a lot of experience identifying as a supervisor. I have experience identifying as a leader, right? And you guys have heard me talk about this as the executive leader. To be in this supervisory role is a quasi, it's still quasi leadership for me in terms of my wiring. Now, this is the part I've had to reconcile with myself over the past few days. Like, is this where you need to be? And in order for me to be, this is, this is where the number five, what's next? Like that's seriously, that's a serious question. What's next for me? Because one thing I will say is I know that this is just, it's just complicated. It really is. Because I think when I went back into employment, I knew that if I wasn't going to be able to be at the top of the leadership chain, I was like, well, I'm going to go to the bottom. I'm going to go back to the classroom. And then I'm going to do, I'm going to do leadership in that way. I'm going to fight. That was not terrible. And actually sometimes that's quite appealing to me. Sometimes going back to the bottom of the leadership structure where now I can fight up is good for me. (laughs) It is, but I didn't like, I don't know. I didn't like, I didn't, I don't know. Anyway, there's, God, I'm sorry. I hate when this happens. I don't have, yeah, it's good because I can fight up the challenges when, Again, the, the 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 supervisors, the head or the the top leader, is of color. Now, when it is a man of a color, I, I, it's easier, like I did with my the CEO last year. It's easier than if it was a woman of color. It's easier, <laughs> but. Um, so that's the context of that power dynamic for me in terms of protectiveness and using that energy. Um, and I saw myself, I was at a conference this week and I was at the table with two white women. The moment there was a white man, the moment he came and sat down, um, my affect changed. It was automatic. And it wasn't that I was going to power over him, but I was not going to be vulnerable to him immediately I shifted and um, if you guys are listening to me I'm I'm going to just really bounce become bouncy because my mind is my brain is starting to make a lot of interesting connections and I can't keep up right now so it might come across as being really disjointed for the next few minutes so just hold tight please because what's just happening in my head is that I've, I've watched myself do that it was it happened uh, Wednesday night, as a matter of fact, and I was like, "Huh, that you, I saw it. I saw it dispositionally, and I was like, well, he didn't do anything, and I didn't argue with him. I didn't argue with him. I didn't do I didn't do anything to him, but I became less vulnerable. And the one the moment I said that a few minutes ago is when I realized that with women, I'm programmed." To make myself more vulnerable to. Because of my mom. 
I'm less vulnerable with white women than I am with women of color, but all the same, I'm I'm more vulnerable. I will make myself vulnerable to white to white women more so than than white men. This is really interesting. So this issue, and this is what type eights we don't do. We don't do vulnerability. But the complication of having two types of abuse structures in my childhood experience is what complicates that for me as a type eight. It's the vulnerability. And I think it's the vulnerability that's underneath that anger. I can feel it right now. I absolutely feel it in terms of the, I'm having some emotional sensations right now. Um, So when I ended that session with my heart coach and we talked about anger being underneath all of that, what we didn't talk about, which is what I've done since that meeting with her on Wednesday, is anger is really sadness. What's underneath anger? I don't think anger, I think sadness is underneath anger. Well, that's kind of what, that's, that was the point. She, it, so there are two levels of repression here. Sadness that is turned inward. Anger is sadness that's turned in, inward. So that's one thing that was, that's happening. And then as an, here it is. Oh my gosh, this is so good. And then as an eight, I would have taken that sadness turned inward as anger and I would have acted on it. But now I had another resistance because this is my staff of color and I need to be protective of them and vulnerable with them because I'm of color. And that was what was happening um, in this group. It was really called an affinity group. So they've all gotten together and they've created this group. It's called the Affinity Group. And affinity to me means I can come to a space and I and we're going to be in this space together because that's how they've defined it, belonging and healing. And they wanted to invite me into that so that if I can, I needed to do that too. But they're what they're doing is limiting my vulnerability to whites. I don't have a problem with becoming non-vulnerable to white people. There's just, I don't typically have that. And maybe because I'm a type eight and they need that group for that because they are not eights. So what they wanted me to do is come into this group where we can all be vulnerable together. I'm a, I'm being a little like facetious. I, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I don't need that group for that. Not for that. Now, do I have other vulnerabilities? Yes. And they are that. I'm I'm vulnerable to them. It's really an interesting breakthrough. That's a really, 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 really interesting breakthrough for me. And so what? That's almost an hour into this reflection. And so what? What is that going to mean in terms of my leadership? So one thing I decided to do was that I wasn't going to be a part of that affinity group. You know, they didn't like it. And I said, well, we'll first develop a relationship one-on-one with each other. And I said, I need to be in affinity with you individually. 
before I can come into this group, right? That's the, see, that's the, that's the introvert in me. I'm not going to do this with you as a group. <laughs> that doesn't make any, that's not a good place for me. Cause one of my, one of my uh, staff of color said, you know, you're doing a lot of one-on-one, but we should come together as a group. Well, that makes sense to you because you're an extrovert. That group space is where if that feels good for you, it doesn't feel good for me. Not at all. And it just was very, it was, was a difficult that like that group has been a very difficult place for me in the job. Cause you guys know, I've been talking about, Oh, I love the job. I love the job. I love the job. Right. And based on the experience I had at this conference, there's some parts of that job that are like icky, which is why I know, I understand why, um, I understand why the, the BIPOC staff have come together to be a support to one another because there's some real ickiness, racial ickiness in that organization. Really it is. But I'm going to respond to that. I'm going to respond to that ickiness differently than as an eight. I'm going to, as an INTJ eight, I'm going to respond to it differently than they would. So I don't need a group in my handling of the ickiness. Not at all. I'm going to use my intellect. <laughs> I'm going to use my strategy. I'm going to use my eightness to deal with that ickiness. I'm all over it. You know what I mean? I'm not like over it I'm, as in I'm done with it. I'm all over it as in I feel really confident that I'm going to be able to address that ickiness inside of the job. But the job has lost some of its, oh my God, it's so amazing, right? Which is good because this is why I said we're going to give it 90 days. You know, and I'm I'm technically in three months in, but not 90 days, right? Because of 90 work days. But we're three months in, 12 weeks. I just ended my 13th week. And I see it. I see it. Which then allows me to have the conversation, what's next? So I want to, um, I'm going to go over an hour. But what I want to do is I want to talk about numbers one and four on my list. And maybe a little bit of number three. So number one was about the adult human. And number four was about an FETI organization. Um, And then I'm going to end with number three about INTJ effectiveness. So this is, the this is I'm going to talk a little bit about the icky, if you will, or nah, I don't know. So, um, okay. No, 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 I'll have to do that as a separate, or I'm going to do that as a separate uh, reflection. Um, I think I want to, I want to go back to something about this, um, my staff of color and that struggle that I was having with making myself vulnerable to them when I don't need to do that. As a leader, and I don't. I wonder what other people in leadership, what else they like. I think that leaders can strategically make them share that vulnerability. I don't know if I. I don't know if the word. I don't even think the word. I don't like the word vulnerability, because what I can do. I guess there's. I guess there are types of vulnerabilities, right? There are levels of vulnerability, but this vulnerability that I'm feeling is core vulnerability, 
It's some childhood vulnerability shit that's happening. They don't, they don't, they don't deserve that. I don't even think the word is deserve. They're not entitled to that level of uh, vulnerability. And chances are they don't want that. They're not functioning with it. That's probably not even in their radar. But because of my uh, childhood stuff, it's bubbling up. And it's only bubbling up because those are women of color. That's the only reason why that childhood stuff is bubbling up like that. And this is, I got to check that, right? That's what it means to mature as a leader. When I see something getting in the way of my leadership. Right? Because there's some things that I, there's some things that need to happen with this group. Because how they were managed in the past that I've now inherited. So anyway, that, that feels better. I mean, I feel like that's what I've been really processing this weekend. Today is Sunday, by the way. For those of you who are going to listen to this in the future. <laughs> um, so what I, what I did this morning to help me to, um, what I did yesterday is, um, I was talking this out yesterday with somebody. I'm automatically assigning a maturity level to these uh, women simply because they're of color. So there are two, there are two domains here. There are two dimensions here, rather. They're adults and they're racialized women. And both of those things are true. This is not an either or. There are expectations of being an adult that are important to me when I'm leading. And I'm going to talk to you. I will share that with you. And there are understandings that I give to you because I know what it's like to be a racialized woman. I know what that's like. So there is an expectation that I have and there's a, there's compassion. So you take that juxtaposition. I'm expecting and I'm understanding at the same time. And you put that on top of that childhood stuff that's bubbling up. Do you guys see what you see what it is? <laughs> so the other piece that I have to confront is not just that childhood stuff that was bubbling up that I didn't really, really fully understand until I'd hit the record button. That understanding has just come through this past hour. So thank you. I always say that to you all. Thank you for giving me a space to extrovert this very private stuff. We know I'm putting it into the wild, wild west. But what I was, what I came to yesterday before hitting the record button is that I'm going to have to deal with the juxtaposition of, I still can have expectations of you as an adult, all while giving you grace and understanding of what it means to be racialized in the world and in an organization that is icky. I can do both of those things. Now, whether or not you want to be side by side with me as I do both of those things, well, now you determine the nature of our relationship. Because what they were doing is creating an affinity space 
for me to come into their world to do things their way. That's not what it is to do leadership. And so then they were using language like, I don't see leadership like that. I think we're all on the same page. Yes, we are all on the same page. Excuse me. We all can be on the same page. But are we? So let me tell you the page that I'm on. I'm on the page that we're adults in an organization as adults putting systems in place for children. That's the page I'm on. What page are you on? I'm so looking forward to doing a training. I'm going to be doing a a training, a meeting with my staff next week. Not this week, coming up next week. I'm so excited to put some language out there so people know what page I'm on. And I'm going to be very clear. There are four areas. I got four clusters of so they'll know how I operate, like my operating manual. So they can decide how they can partner. They want to partner with me. And if they feel any resistance and they want to fight, this is just going to make it clear when you're fighting with me identify which of these four clusters you're actually fighting against because I'm not going to take it personal you're fighting against one of these clusters here you need to be clear on that so that um that felt that felt really important um and I was talking to someone I automatically gave them my default is to look at a human being And my default, and this is something I need to process some more. My default is to say they're human, right? And they're mature. But that is an ineffective default. Even though I just felt it in my stomach, my stomach just communicated something to me. Even though that is what it's like for me to be an an eight The eight protector in me has to respect people in their, in their human selves. Because I go against other people who don't. I, that's what oppression means to me. To be oppressed is to be denied access to your full humanity. Well, I don't care supervisor or not. I don't want to go against someone's full humanity. So there are not a lot of models of this, of what I'm saying as a leader, right? Of the kind of leader I am. There are not a lot of models because most leaders are authoritarian, authoritative, or completely laissez-faire. So I went and found, um, and I didn't put this on the um, list. I wonder why, but I did go and find there's seven, yeah, seven some articles say four four leadership styles, three leadership styles. So I found one that was 12, 20. I'm like, whatever. But I looked at the one that said seven. And honestly, there are like three basic leadership types types in this seven. Um, autocratic, authoritative. This particular list separates them. In the other list, when there was just three, autocratic and authoritative um, are together. Then the, the the second main leadership type is democratic style, and then the third um, is laissez faire. Um, but I like the seven because it kind of allows me to get a little more nuance. And typically, the two styles that I use um, the most would be autocratic, honestly, and coaching. 
That's how I've been as a leader in a school setting. And you know what allows me to be authoritative? Children, right? Because they're the most vulnerable. And then I move into that role to protect them. That's the protector in me. Well, in this particular organization, kids are not around. Our organization exists to protect children in the world, but we don't interact with kids. We don't interact with them. We don't see them, right? So there's no reason for me to be an authoritative leader. So then I wanted to be, um, I can see still wanting to do coaching style leadership. Um, and what I was doing is dropping down to being an affiliate, affiliate leader. That's a, that's in this list, an affiliate leader, like being with, right? But I'm going to be with you in an organization that's icky, (laughs) that's got these icky practices. And it just, because they're, the rhetoric of the organization is about equity. It's, it's equity-based rhetoric. It's not equity. It's not, it is not an equitable organization. But they've got the rhetoric of it. They've got the training. They've got the language. Obviously, all of this. That's the rhetoric. They know the vocabulary of it. They know the concepts. So then they can play defensively. So one of the things that come out of equity-based training is fragility. Typically, fragility is experienced by white women for a particular reason. Typically, not always. I don't have time to get into that now. If you want to know about that, send me a message. I can do a short YouTube clip for you all. But so this organization has studied white white female fragility. So now when they start crying, they say, this is so, it's so absurd to me. Now when they start crying in that fragility, what they'll say is, I'm not fragile right now. That's not why I'm crying. So they, there's a heightened, the vocabulary has just allowed them to be more defensive. It hasn't, it has not really created equity. It has just created, um, has just empowered them to be more defensive and evasive. To do the real work. So anyway. So these seven styles. And according to this article that I read. is on a continuum. And I did tweet it out by the way. I tweeted this article out. If you want to know it. Go to my website. My Twitter account. Uranidom1. And so at the top is autocratic. Next is authoritative. Third is pace setting. Fourth is democratic. Fifth is coaching. Sixth is affiliative. And seventh is laissez-faire. And honestly, you move up and down this continuum as needed. And so what I have to make sure in my leadership maturity, because I'm going to start landing the plane now, in my leadership maturity, I have to make sure that I don't get stuck in any one of those leadership styles. That I'm able to move up and down. Now, when I was a principal or a principal, when I was an executive director of a school, Having the power, the executive level power, I absolutely moved up and down this uh, continuum with ease. But I'm finding that being in this middle manager place, it's not it's not easy to move up and down it. It's not. But I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm going to come back and report out to you how I'm doing because 
I'm going to mod- watch myself. I'm going to watch myself where I get stuck, right? I, honestly, the autocratic, excuse me, not the autocratic, the, authori- the authoritative, the reason why that's me, based on this website, is the one as a visionary leader. Has a vision, sees where we want people to go, and start putting structures in place for the organization to move in that direction. Where it's laissez-faire, is like, I don't have a direction for us to go. We just go wherever, wherever you want to go, <laughs> right? Um, and so those are, to me, opposite. So I do live and linger more in the authoritative, the authoritative. Yeah, the authoritative style, even though I know that sounds negative, right? Uh, but I couple that with coaching, and um, I definitely do pace setting, and I do a lot. I do I integrate a high degree of democratic uh, leadership, but it's inside of the authoritative. So this is where we're going. Here, here are the here are your parameters. Now, what do you think on the? First of all, what do you think about the parameters? Poke those parameters, right? That's what I'll say. But at the end of the day, when you give me feedback on those parameters, I'm just going to strengthen them based on your feedback. But you will not be able to say to me, those parameters are not unnecessary. You would not be able to say to me, oh, we don't need parameters. That's where the authoritarian, the authoritarian in me would come forth and say, oh, we are going to have, we're going to have parameters. And the parameters are going to be, it's going to look something like this. Now, democratically, you can then come and say, you can help me tighten those parameters. Help me to see what I'm missing. And then, um, but then, then, then there is a laissez-faire part of me is once those parameters are up, I'm like, have at it. Go do what you need to do. Let me know how I can help you. It's, but my, I don't divorce myself from those parameters. So this has just been good to even like think about those seven types of leadership styles. Who am I? So then as I'm talking about, oh, I had a struggle. I'm struggling here. Well, you're struggling because of what? Not just the why, but where do you want to be in terms of your leadership style? And that feels really important and helpful that I've kind of talked that through. Okay. I'm going to close here by telling you the six aspects of being an adult. I'm going to close here. Okay. There are six of them. Rationality, formulating, equality, active, non-defensive, and power. Probably holding on to your personal power. And this is this these are the six areas. I didn't I never had this list. But when I found that list this morning, and by the way, I tweeted this list out too. So go check it out. If you do check it out, put a heart next to it so I know that you Somebody received it, but I tweeted this article out, so go check it out. Did it this morning, um, so I think the October 30th, 2022. Rationality, formulating, equality, active, non-defensive, and personal power. All six of those relate to me as what does it mean to be an adult. And one of the things I want to do walking forward, in addition to monitoring how I move up and down that leadership continuum, the other thing I want to do is pay attention to how the, just think more about the problems of defaulting, assuming that adult humans are operating at this level of maturity. So I can be protective and a fighter of someone's humanity. But that does not mean that I should 
assume that they're mature in these six areas. Even though I, I feel it in my body again, it does go against my nature as an eight in terms of protecting. I have the effectiveness in me as an INTJ is saying, yo, everybody is not walking around with all six of those levels, all six of those um aspects being mature in all six of those areas it would be ineffective for you to to just make that assumption but i have been making that assumption and when it comes to these five women these five women they're not functioning collectively in these six areas they're not now individually they might be but there's something about that affinity space in terms of how they have used it in conjunction to this ickiness and this organization that I think is stripping them from that maturity. And that's the piece. That's the piece that I have to contend with with them. So I'm going to share that article actually with the whole organization so that um, I think because I think the ickiness and the organization as a whole really falls within these six areas as well. I truly believe that the BIPOC staff it's truly responding to the ickiness in the organization. Now, that's my protectiveness, protectiveness coming through. But I also need to be a, a, a pragmatist and say, I am a pragmatist. They're not functioning. They're not currently functioning at the maturity level of all six of these areas. That's just the truth. So um, what I do want to say this. Um, I want to say what really makes this organization icky in a it's not the fact that the organization is 80% white women. That's not what makes it icky. Not at all. What makes it icky is this. Sociopolitically, being white women, not white women because of who you are as a human, but sociopolitically, white women are socialized to be power and to be powerless. And when you are, and this is what I was saying earlier that I wasn't going to talk about, but I am closing here. To be powerful and powerless at the same time. You're powerful by way of your race and your associate, your affiliation with white men. That's what makes you, makes you powerful. And you're powerless because of the same thing. Because of your relationship to white men. So then you come into an organization where it's the majority of you and then you are, and this is not the first organization I've seen this. I did one on irrational, I think I did irrational behaviors. I wish I would have had the language that I have now because that's what I was talking about in that episode. I did it about a year ago. I think it was called irrational emotions and irrational behaviors or something like that. Because you come into an organization, you bring that automatic power that you have. And then what you're doing is working out and reconciling that powerlessness that you've experienced in the world. And then you use the power that you have to fight for more power. You use the power that you have to reconcile your powerlessness inside of this organization. And hot damn, when TI is weaponized for power, and that's what's happening. 
there's a F-E-T-I dynamic. I'm sure of it. I'm going to have them all take the test. I'm sure of it. We'll see. We'll see. I believe I believe the majority of them are F-E-T-I. Now, whether they're T-I-F-E or F-E-T-I, I don't know. I don't care. But we'll see. We'll see. And boy, that, that, boy, we'll see. I'll come back and share with you what the, what the numbers say with that. So that's what creates the ickiness though. That's what I've, can, I've experienced. I know that the BIPOC team, they've experienced it. We just are going to respond to it differently. And I think vulnerability has a big, a significant part of that. They're very comfortable with being vulnerable with each other. I would have liked that. I think I wanted to. Which is, then I feel like that's gross. Why would I want to do that? I think there was a part of me that, because they say in the Enneagram, uh, any, the number that you are is really what, when you were a child, is where you got stuck. Is where you were, you were stuck. You got stuck in the, um, in the developmental cycle that you really should just flow through all of those numbers, but your needs weren't met. Your needs weren't met in a particular way and you got stuck. And so my, I never received that space of being able to be vulnerable um, to a woman. And it's interesting because I didn't get a chance to be vulnerable to a man either. But I wasn't expected to protect him. I was expected to protect the person I couldn't be vulnerable with. It is what it is. I mean, it's just what it is. Adult psychology is all about looking at how we are as adults based on our childhood. We all, all of us, all of us, all of us have a story. And so as I close, um, I'm going to just take this. I feel like there are a number of things here about vulnerability, uh, ideas around leadership styles, um, there's a lot here relating to race because I think race complicated. I was watching a video before I hit the record button about, cause I don't read a lot of, I read a lot of literature about INTJ women, but I don't read a lot of literature about, um, type eight women. So this morning I was like, what, what does the literature say about women who are type eights? And so I got this video and it was really good. And the lady that was, she brought on these different eight women to kind of answer some questions about their eightness and, and their gender. And the lady who was talking said, come on, we got to be honest that gender plays a part here. And then I want to say yes. And so does race. So does race. Not because race is inherently about who you are as a person, but race is inherently about how society is going to respond to you. Race is, in, is an inherent feature of society. It is not an inherent feature of the individual. That's what it is. So, <sighs> You guys, if this reflection is at any value for you, please give it a heart at this conversation about vulnerability, race, and gender, and leadership. Growth, childhood stuff, childhood wounds. And if any of that relates to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link. Oh, and about being a mature human. 
please uh, take this link and share it with those participants. If my moving about in this reflection has caused some randomness in you, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. On Twitter, yournidom1. Go check out those articles, you guys. And Facebook and YouTube, yournidom. Let me give you your assignment. So oftentimes when I'm giving you guys the assignment, when I say let me give you the assignment, I hit the pause button. So I can just sit in a minute, sit sit still for a minute, be quiet, and listen to what comes to me. And immediately, I didn't have to sit long, immediately what came to me when I hit the pause button was the words wounds in the way. Wounds in the way. W-O-U-N-D-S. In the way. And that is a song that someone shared with me in 2007. So about 15 years ago. Um, and I went to go look up the lyrics for you all. And because um, I was going to say, go check out that song. Now it's a song about like romance. What gets in the way of us being able to love um, and be in these healthy romantic relationships. But I think the words, I think the sentiment can be, is all the same. I'm going to actually read the lyrics to you. And then I'm going to tweet the song um, I'm going to find it and I'll tweet out the song, okay? Because uh, your assignment is going to be grounded in this idea of Wounds in a Way. So Wounds in a Way by Rochelle Farrell. She gives her body freely because she can't give herself completely. There are wounds in the way. She cannot bear to be naked to the world, so instead she just fakes it with a man. There are wounds in the way. If they would have treated a little girl and a little boy when basically still just a baby, with some respect and human dignity, Maybe there wouldn't be so many failed relationships. We might even have a ghost of a chance of just loving each other, mind, body, and soul. He gives his money freely because he can't give himself completely. There are wounds in the way. He cannot bear to be honest with himself. So what the hell, he'll lie to a woman. There are wounds in the way. Then the chorus is on repeat. If they would have treated a little boy and a little girl when basically just still a baby, when some respect and human dignity, maybe there wouldn't be so many failed relationships. We might even had a ghost of a chance of just loving each other, mind, body, excuse me, body, mind, and soul. As time passes by the, by, they begin to multiply. There are wounds in the way. Adding up secretly like the rings of an old oak tree. There are wounds in the way. Then the chorus, I'm going to skip the chorus. Um, some old and some new, all stifling, debilitating, and cruel. There are wounds in the way. And some are passed down from elder to youth. They don't even belong to you. There are wounds in the way. That's multi, that's generational trauma right there. As time passes through, they begin to accrue a strange sort of value. Some that you think are worth holding on to because you don't want to change who you are. No, you don't. Oh my gosh, this is good. He loves her strong and true, but when he gets angry, it gets misconstrued into violence. There are wounds, and she loves him equally, but when she feels misunderstood instead of sharing openly and honestly, she is wounded. There are wounds in a way. So I'm going to tweet that song out. I haven't heard it in in almost 15 years, but I'm going to go and listen to it after I'm done with this recording. So your assignment is... What are possible wounds that are in the way right now? What are wounds from childhood? That's the first thing you're going to have to do. Identify some childhood wounds. And if you don't know, go read the Enneagram. 
If you don't know your number, go take your number and then find out your childhood as it relates to that Enneagram. That's a really good tool. Go check it out because I think we all have it. And we do ourselves and the world a disservice when we're walking around unaware of those wounds. Because like that song says, this becomes who you are. And then we fight to be that thing. Some that you think are worth holding on to. Because you don't want to change who you are. So those wounds become part of your personality. And then you fight for it. It's fascinating. That No, just no. Mm-mm. So I would encourage you guys to go in your homework assignment, find out what those wounds are and figure out how they're showing up and what are you going to do about it? Because I know what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to make sure it doesn't show up and negatively or adversely impact my leadership. Yeah. I already feel like I got it worked out on a personal level. About 85 to 90%. But I got to figure out what I'm going to do with that as it relates to my leadership when kids aren't around. When kids are around, I'll have a problem. But when kids are not around, this is important. You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.